Welcome to Real World Radio Europe, a show bringing together what's going on in the over 30 national member groups of Friends of the Earth Europe. We are the European branch of the world's largest grassroots environmental and social justice network, Friends of the Earth International. I'm Paul. I'm Maruska. And today we're recording uh, in sunny, well not quite sunny, Molenbeek in Brussels. From it's the... never sunny in Brussels. <laughs> And where are we? So we are here at the third day of uh, Young Friends of the Earth uh, Europe Convergence event on intersectionality. And we have here almost 30 participants from around Europe, from Ireland, UK, Norway, uh, Spain, Germany, Macedonia, Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina. I mean, it's maybe simpler just to list the countries where people are not from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and Uganda. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and um, with this event, we wanted to do something uh, new, and that is challenge, firstly, in our own organizations and movements, um, our own structures, and to challenge... Um, how we work and how we do our campaigns. Um, we want our campaigns and our networks to be more intersectional, uh, which means um, that we need to start calling people in who are not necessarily white and middle class, uh, which is the case in the European environmental movement predominantly. And we started working on this um, in the last years and we want to really take this forward and really achieve uh, change in our movement first and and in this way this is uh, going to be more impact, impactful when we talk about social change and, and system change and environmental justice in general. And the interview we've got today is with uh, an activist from the UK called Emma Simpson. going to run us through some of the basics and the not so basics on intersectionality and what it means and how we can actually put it into practice to um, improve our movements and our activism. We're at the Young Friends of the Earth Convergence event in, in Brussels. Um, I'm Paul. And I'm Emma, and I'm one of the organisers of the Convergence. And today we're going to talk a little bit about a concept called intersectionality, how that relates to the climate movement, which is something that you've got a degree of experience in. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably fair to say. It's a big area of interest. Um, but more than an area of interest, something that I'm actively working on in the climate campaigns I do, and that I think is fundamentally important to the success of a climate movement, campaigns I'm involved in, and campaigns that the rest of the Friends of the Earth kind of youth federation will be involved in. Uh, so I guess I can sort of like give a little overview of what intersectionality is conceptually, uh, but then I'm also going to talk about what it looks like in practice and how people actually done intersectionality in the past and how they're doing it now. So it was an African-American woman called Kimberly Crenshaw that first coined the term intersectionality uh, and kind of described it, and this isn't verbatim, but kind of described it as the understanding of a connected system of oppression. So intersecting parts of identities that interact together to produce unique experiences of oppression, discrimination, and violence. And by that, to kind of tear away some of that more academic language, what that means is that you're different 
experiences as someone that comes from a particular place, belongs to a particular community, has a particular self-identity, those things will interact with each other and produce an incredibly unique narrative in regard to social justice issues, climate justice issues, your relationship with the world around you. And intersectionality is recognising that as fundamentally important in how we engage both with ourselves and the communities around us, that you don't just look at one thing on its own. It's not that people experience oppression simply because they're women, it's that they might also experience dual oppression as women of colour or women from particular faith communities or women living in an impoverished area. Your identities don't exist in isolation from one another. They combine and that produces these very unique experiences that it's important to be mindful of. And so I think that that illustrates really well this kind of the analytical approach, I suppose, to it. But how does, and how does this kind of relate more practically, I suppose, to the climate struggle? And what, why is this, you know, materially relevant? So I think it's materially relevant in that it is a way of understanding the world around us. And if we're going to run effective campaigns, we have to understand what it is that we're tackling, and what environment it exists in, what the world around us really looks like. It's more than just that climate change is happening and that's quite bad. It's climate change is happening, but not affecting everyone equally, being distributed across power structures in different ways, impacting particular communities in very specific ways. Uh, And it requires engagement of those communities and awareness of those ways of power and violence manifesting to build campaigns that are responsive. We need to understand how things like discrimination function if we're going to tackle them. And anyone that's been involved in climate campaigning either will know through personal experience of kind of the flashback you might get as an activist or through being aware of wider climate struggle that discrimination state supported violence those things exist within an activist struggle but then even on a finer detail than that they exist in how climate change is actively manifesting so which communities it's affecting first and which ones it's affecting hardest so it's not just that we will all inevitably be taken along for the horrible ride of catastrophic climate change. It's that some people are already suffering and dying and have been for a long time. I think there's this predominantly kind of Europe-centric view of climate change as something that's coming. But other parts of the world, it's here, it's happening. Like islands are underwater, like the Marshall Islands are at such great risk. People are already dying in activist struggle to try and defend that the land that they're reliant upon, the communities that they belong to. These are very real struggles that I think that in some senses we've ignored by not having an understanding of intersectionality because they've sometimes been conceived of as like racialized struggle in sub-Saharan Africa or a primarily kind of gender-focused struggle around like trans people and their experiences with their like, waterfront areas as part of LGBT communities. And we look at them too much like, oh, that's their thing and I hope it goes well and then we'll go do our thing about fracking and not understand that all those people exist in a movement anyway and will have views, experiences and needs from the movement and how they would create themselves as campaigners, but also have real insight into like what climate change is really doing to communities and how it's going to be handed down differently. So it's not enough to just think of like an energy solution or to run a really engaging visual campaign to raise awareness of that like, fracking is a pretty bad thing. It has to be that... You understand who it's really going to hurt and you make yourselves good allies for those people. You don't just build something like a wind farm. Like, here you go, lovely. You think, <laughs> that's great, isn't it? So, well, do people still have access to that energy? You've built a new sustainable energy infrastructure, but does fuel poverty still exist? Whose homes are supplied by electricity? Whose aren't? 
do those things exist along kind of like lines of class or of race or of gender or of ability just because an energy sector might become sustainable and renewable in a kind of mechanical sense or in kind of like a fuel driven sense doesn't mean that there'll be the social sustainability to go with it i think often sustainability has been seen as environmental lots of like hard green messaging turn off your lights ride your bike to work make sure you have a nice house plant think green use a compost toilet all things that are great to do and that i'm firmly an advocate of but just aren't in any way sensitive to the social elements of sustainability is like how do you care for communities and keep them alive and do it together there's a, often been this historical focus within, I guess, bigger climate campaigns or kind of mainstream environmental messaging, which is that you have to do it. You, the individual, you, Paul, what are you doing to fight climate change? I cycled here. You cycled here. Fuck, we're done. Climate change <laughs> is over. Paul has cycled to the venue. We're finished. Uh, but that's just such a common, like, we've all seen that, like, kind of the big pressure, like, oh, you should cycle to work and lots of businesses mm. do it to encourage their employees to make the business greener. Uh, but that's a really what it is, is a divide and conquer strategy from people that are actively producing and contributing to, that are propping up kind of a climate disaster, what we're currently in. If it becomes about individual action, that's a great way of separating people from their communities and from the truth of that we have to do. It's not that you can fix it, it's that we can fix it. It has to be a collaborative effort and collaborative efforts don't work unless people understand each other and it's not that you're ever going to get this complete, wonderful place of understanding where you know someone completely. But we, as a climate movement, can be doing a lot more to really appreciate and try and assess the struggles of communities that don't make up a typical activist block at a climate march. There has long been this complaint from outside and inside of a climate movement that we're predominantly affluent, middle class, white lots of cis people, predominantly a straight group of people as well. And that's quite an accurate read of what the climate movement looks like. So it's more than just we need to understand ourselves, we need to understand what other communities are around us and not just build campaigns that work for us because we're not in any way representative and certainly not representative of the people that are going to be hurt by climate change first. You are listening to Friends of the Earth Europe's show radio. So, on that point of um, talking about who's going to be most affected by climate change, I mean, I guess it's maybe interesting to look at natural disasters and climate-related disasters that have happened already, which mm. kind of provide a... Uh, bit of insight. Bit of insight, bit of nasty foreshadowing as to what's to come. Yeah, well, I think looking at, say, the example of Hurricane Katrina, I think it's quite a good one for like how disaster management worked within the state. Uh, and there was kind of like a broad awareness within certain groups and even in some kind of media coverage that people of colour communities, which the ones that were really hit hardest because it was less stable housing, it was in areas that were closer to kind of like potential flooding zones, they were less well supplied by electricity, they were further away from centralised resources, they were really hit hard, so devastated, but then didn't get the government support or the emergency support that they needed at the time that they needed it. It took a long time. Some people, it took years to be able to kind of like reclaim their homes, to build back up, to raise the money, to re-establish their community lives. And then like the richer areas of the city seemed to get patched up pretty fast. And that is in no way a mistake. That was certainly the government, regional and federal, having particular interests in one group of people over another. 
But then there's another part that's kind of missing often from that narrative when we talk about Katrina or other kind of similar disasters where like urban areas have been decimated by climate disaster or even kind of rural areas, any area that's been taken apart by something like a hurricane or a particularly bad flood or tsunami, we have a growing awareness that people of colour communities have it worse, but then we don't tend to look within people of colour communities to be like, well, what about queer people of colour? Uh, who, this is like my massive academic point of interest and it's something that I'm very passionate about and I do a lot of work around is precarious labour and kind of queer sex working in queer communities near waterfronts because historically a lot of like big queer scenes are on waterfronts which I think is a very literal manifestation of a more metaphorical social isolation being pushed to the outside and if you think about it from the perspective of LGBT people not often being that well loved by the communities around them if there is a disaster are people going to help them like they might be living highly likely to be living in unstable housing lots of like youth homelessness within LGBT communities certainly in the UK and Europe uh, lots of issues around like kind of violence, both within personal relationships that we have and wider kind of state-supported violence. And you layer all that on top of a climate disaster that might have like taken their homes or made the streets unsafe. And then how are they going to cope? Again, how are disabled people going to cope in that space as well? Are they getting the support, whether emotional or physical, that they need from the services that are coming in to pick everyone up? There just isn't that nuanced approach and there isn't this understanding of difference in people, meaning that they have different needs and different wants for support. And so many people fall through these cracks in our understanding. I think we're only just, and it's disappointingly late, inching along as a movement to be like, yeah, it's probably a bit worse in some countries, isn't it? Mm, yeah, and probably worse people of colour. Good, getting it. And that's a realisation that's come far too late and also which isn't expansive enough. Like there's your race and set with other parts of your identity, like ability, like class like your gender or your sexuality uh and we're just not there yet we've kind of like we've picked one thing we're like we're quite good at this one thing maybe um, and obviously it's more than one thing we need to really move away from this kind of analysis of looking at one thing at a time uh and like think about it as a complete picture i mean to what extent do you think it's fair to say that maybe the maybe the, i would say the dominant european climate movement has what might be represented as a, I'm doing big air quotes here, diversity problem. <laughs> uh, so Paul well knows that this is my pet peeve. So this is a sentence that I've heard a lot um, that people will say, that, oh, the climate movement has a diversity problem. And where it comes from is this recognition that it is predominantly white people with the privilege of money and time to give to activism, safety from things like arrest or police violence. And that recognition is a good thing to have that degree of self-awareness but then it translates to we have a diversity problem and problem infers that we need to fix it uh, and diversity problem means the solutions the tools to fix it are people and that's deeply troubling that's really uncomfortable oh, we've got a diversity problem so I guess we should just get in some diverse people and then we won't have a diversity problem anymore let's just go out and I will pick up some gays and, and then it will just be more diverse won't it and, and great and it'll be fixed it's not a problem to be fixed. It's certainly an issue, but it's something that we need to work on within ourselves as a movement, within our understanding of intersectionality, different identities and how they relate to the climate. So it's more nuanced view of what these root causes are of climate change and how they react to other social injustice and unrest. So like imperialism, colonialism, kiriarchy, patriarchal power structures they all relate to the climate and how we got to this place where we are slowly eating away 
at our ability to survive in our own world. These things all come from the same places. And we, in that sense, have a shared oppression. And I feel that rather than what we often do, which is kind of we sit around and we're like, okay, well, we'll just, they'll come to us and they'll fix a diversity problem. Why are we not going to them? Why are we not going like, oh, we have a particular area of interest and area of expertise. We know how to do nonviolent direct action or we know about climate. Maybe that's related to what you're doing. Like, why does it have to be that they have to come to us to make our movement more diverse? Why do we have to be the be and end all and the one unifying struggle? I think something that's incredibly worthwhile to do, and this is getting kind of more into the kind of the practical examples and how intersectionality might work within climate movements, is that, yeah, maybe you join up with someone for a collaborative climate focus campaign, but also maybe you're just a really good ally. Like maybe you just show up for people when they need you and you step down when people don't this kind of concept of step up and step down and when is your voice helpful, necessary uh, and important and when is it not? And maybe some of what we should be doing, and I say maybe certainly some of what we should be doing is just practicing better allyship and better solidarity with other movements. So like an uh, example from you know our own like history within the UK, because I'm a UK-based campaigner, uh, is that of lesbians and gays support the minors. It's like my favourite one of my favourite examples of intersectional campaigning and kind of solidarity campaigning really done right in many ways, right to the point where we still think about it and we still remember it as an example. And it's now the featuring kind of focus point of this film, Pride, which is so good. If you want to have a good cry, watch Pride. Paul's doing jazz hands. It's very good. Uh, and for those that don't know, it's like 1980s uh, kind of struggle under the Thatcher government in the UK and minor strikes and resistance to kind of like pay cuts, desperately unfair work conditions, the closure of mines, lots of civil unrest. Uh, and LGSM, which was started off as a group of like lesbian and gay people in London, kind of became aware in the news reporting that the police that had previously been bothering them were now over in Wales bothering the miners. And there was this understanding of, we may not be the same people and in many ways are radically different from radically different perspectives, communities and identities. But we both know what it's like to be brutalised by the police. And we both know what it's like to have the central government and a lot of other people around hate us. Because for as much as people were really supportive of the miners, they tended to come from like miners' families and communities. And lots of people in the UK, they hated the miners and the miners' strikes in the same way that they also hated LGBT people. And that was the unifying thing. That was the shared oppression, the shared perspective, the shared struggle. And it didn't have to be more detailed than that. It's not that you have to mesh up neatly on every single objective or aim. You just kind of had to be able to get each other. So they fundraised to help support the miners in like the money they needed to keep being on strike, to support their families, to keep their homes heated, all that kind of stuff. They raised that money and they gave it and you know, go watch Pride and figure out the actual time and how complex that was for a while and resistance to it and eventually embracing it. But that had like really clear outcomes for more intersectional kind of campaigning bodies. So while LGSM eventually was kind of prevented from giving more money to certain mining groups, fast forward like a year from that point, it was the mining kind of trading unions that pushed Labour to write in policy about support for LGB people. And that's pretty phenomenal. Like that's incredible. Like that whole movement within a kind of mainstream political party towards better awareness of and understanding of LGBT people 
happened because of a collaborative campaign where people recognize the value and support of each other, even though they didn't come from the same place. And this idea of kind of skill sharing, support sharing from communities that aren't your own. Like we tend to just go to a lot of other climate groups to learn how to do climate activism. And I don't think that's always the right approach. You need, in some sense, a fresh pair of eyes, but also there's so much that we can be learning from other groups that we've kind of exhausted within ourselves. I've been to a lot of meetings and conferences and get togethers and I feel like we kind of regurgitate a lot of the same information. I don't think I can bear going to another skill share. I just don't know if I can do it. I don't have the emotional strength. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What I would like to do is to see more climate campaigns going and showing up for other struggles in their countries, in their towns, in the place that live on a regional or national or international scale. Like, if you are welcome in those spaces, go, sit in them, listen. What does that group care about? Maybe you have, like, a disability action group in your town. Maybe they're campaigning against a particular cut. And then maybe they also have an issue of, like, well, if they're campaigning, if they're on strike, or if they're kind of worrying about the stability of their lives, does the kind of, like, fuel poverty come into that? How are they going to keep their homes heated? How does their access to, kind of, public transport come into that? And, like, sustainable transport links and where you live. There are these connections... I think a lot of being able to make them effectively is just going and listening. For like, and it can be quite time intensive, but just go, listen, don't say stuff. Go to the meeting, say, is it okay if I come to this meeting? Is it okay if I hear what you care about and what you're talking about? Sit, listen, leave, rinse and repeat to such a point where you are a trusted person in that group where they have an active interest in you as a group and where you can then have conversations about how you work together, can you work together? Or do they just want like, a donation that you fundraise and give in your name and you show people and by people I mean the big targets the people that are actively creating a climate crisis and actively keeping people down you show them that people aren't disparate and people are unified and that's like a nightmare scenario for people that are trying to monopolize control of like climate or violence is to have people that don't even seem to have much in common come together to be a unified force of we all kind of agree that you're a bit rubbish, whether that you're is in reference to a central government body, whether it's in reference to a big conglomerate, whether it's in reference to someone like Shell. That's a terrifying thing to hear if you're in that position. And it's a much more powerful way of campaigning just by knowing that you have each other's backs and you're out for each other. And I think part of that is moving it away from like everything is a climate campaign to a we're not a climate campaign, we're an everything we care about campaign. Because climate is ultimately everything. And it's the basis of like how we all live, the air that we breathe, the places that we get to go to, the homes that we live in, the interpersonal relationships that we have are deeply shaped by our environments. But I think maybe we've been a bit, but we're the most important. We are, we are, we are. Um, and that just genuinely peeves other campaigns off. Like, it doesn't have to be we're the most important. It's just that we have a lot to offer and they have a lot to offer us. And why can't we all just be like, we all care about surviving, about supporting each other. And that doesn't mean we all care about the climate, but it also means we all care about social justice and we care about equality in the judicial system and we care about stopping police violence. Like We care about stuff. And that may seem like a really crude, basic way of describing campaigning, but that's why we campaign. Like I campaign because I care like about things, but just stuff in general. Just have a lot of care. <laughs> I think that's true of everyone else. I don't think anyone... Well, maybe this is untrue, but I'm not, I've yet to meet an activist that sat down and been like, you know what, I just sort of thought about it rationally and I thought about the time I had on my calendar and I did a cost-benefit analysis and I decided that it was statistically the best move for me to be an activist. 
because it's hard like it's taxing emotionally often physically depending on the activism that you're involved in it could put you at risk depending where you are in the world of like a great deal of violence or arrest or imprisonment people risk a lot to be activists and that means you really have to care and you have to be in a community that cares about you as well and so if there's i don't want to reduce this to something overly buzzfeedy clickbaity list <laughs> but if i was to take away i don't know how many points you want to recommend but to, so i can become a better intersectional campaigner over the next month what should i go out and do top 10 things top for 10 you things. to do to be a better intersectional campaigner yeah um so some like really small stuff uh in terms of just like really small stuff i mean like how are you organizing your meetings so i've been to like actually quite a lot of like anti-fracking meetings in pubs and i want to yell every time it happens so like people might not want to come into that environment because it's just not accessible to them from a faith perspective or they just don't feel comfortable there is your venue like accessible and i mean that in the sense of like is it accessible people that need mobility support who may be using wheelchairs but also is it accessible people that might need to sip out the room for like a quiet break does it have loads of like really big, loud patterns and noises that might be really difficult for autistic people? Like, think about that quite critically. And people sometimes say when I make those recommendations that like, oh, it's quite a lot of work, isn't it? And it's, like, it's quite a lot of work to be people with those accessibility needs. And it's quite a lot of work to be continually ignored and not considered. So there's some like really practical stuff around like plan your meetings better. If you want to do an action, what is that action like how can people participate in it and if they can't participate in it how what else can they do to support it or to support your group if you're planning a march is that march accessible how would you include someone that needed to use a wheelchair or other form of mobility support in your march who gets to set the pace who's looking out for people that kind of like more welfare focused support so that's a very practical thing you could do like think about the accessibility of your venues and of your actions uh, you can also write a group agreement, which is kind of setting terms for how are you going to be mindful with each other and providing ways to actively challenge each other when something bad comes up. Because for as much as the client movement is already diverse, it's not that we are actually exclusively white, cis, straight, middle class people. Like, I'm a queer person and a trans person and my family's from a working class background. So there's already a little smidge of diversity in there for you. Uh, and the same is true of so many other people that are there but maybe not telling you because they don't know that it's safe to coming out um, whether you're coming out about a sexual identity or a gender identity or about some other part of your life that might make things challenging isn't that easy to do and I think people tend to sit in active spaces and they know that they're maybe probably a decent person they've certainly read some Audrey Lord. they've maybe had a thought about race and they wouldn't be actively hateful but people that are existing within really hard, violent scenarios where they're at risk. Why would we know that? How do I, how could I possibly feel secure with someone that I'd only just met or only met a couple of times? Like the fear process is always that they are secretly deeply homophobic or transphobic in a way that might manifest in a really unpleasant way for me or my peers. You have to really assure people and be active in that assurance. Be like, shout about it. Be like, yeah, we're really excited to have like, LGBT people in our group are really supportive of our local like LGBT action campaigns. We've donated to them before. Really psyched to see what they're doing. If you come here, we'll definitely look after you. We have this group agreement, which we're going to try really hard to stick to. We use decision-making processes that make people feel safe and included. We do not tolerate racism in our space. And, like, and then demonstrate it. Like, actually do it. And you can do it by forming those community connections. So two other points there is make a group agreement and think about all those needs. Think about how you can, like, shout and scream about genuinely trying to create a safer space 
to actually invite people already in it to speak about it or to come into it newly uh, and then do that kind of movement building within your town or your country or your uni and just go and like go to those meetings hang out be like is it cool if we just come to a meeting and see what you care about god people want i want to hear that as an activist i want someone to be like what do you care about because like, oh god i could talk about it so much like, isn't that just like a dream question because like, i'm just really interested in what you care about and what you're going through that's amazingly validating especially if what you're going through is not a big supported struggle so do that and if you are welcome to sit in those spaces sit in them learn listen literally take some notes if it's helpful for you and your understanding and then just keep coming back and then be an ally be a friend additional point do some research like google's great genuinely like i feel like i say that a lot official <laughs> endorsement of google then. yeah <laughs> sponsored by google emma simpson uh yeah but genuinely like go and out go out there and like, research and try and learn uh there is this temptation to treat people that are seen as diverse because they're different to you as tools for your learning. Like, oh, I see that you're different. Tell me about that. And some people are very happy to be asked and to answer, but that is not an assumption that you can make. And everyone has a limit of how often they can be challenged on their identity and how often they can explain it to people that don't belong to that community because it's exhausting. It's exhausting to constantly be doing that. So take some of that burden away from people because even if they're not doing it with you, I guarantee they're doing it with their family, their workplace, the members of the public. Take some of that burden away and do your own research. Like, if you do know someone who's really happy to answer questions, do ask them, but always be mindful of how many you're asking and in what way. Maybe just ask for, like, reading list recommendations. Go out and actively try and make yourself a more skilled up, more kind of knowledgeable campaigner. It's not my job to tell you how to do it in like regard to so trans stuff for example so like I'm a trans activist and campaigner and as much as I'm really happy to talk about those campaigns and my identity it's also not my job to do that 24 hours a day seven days a week like, which is why we recorded you telling us so yeah so to. now you can all just listen and that's fine <laughs> uh, yeah people not tools is kind of like my favourite way of summing up the diversity problem statement within the context of the client movement and then learning how to be better allies and show more solidarity. Like these are people, they're not your tools. They're not just things you can learn to improve yourself or like resources you can extract to become a better campaigner. They are people that are probably going through quite a lot and lots of very invasive questioning is not necessarily going to help. So be sensitive to that. Literally be like, Google things. I want to understand intersectionality. What is it like to be trans? (laughs) Go for it. Uh, and you'll definitely find a lot. And yes, it's a bit of time you've got to dedicate and that can feel onerous when we already do so much as campaigners. But your campaign is going to be better, more sustainable, healthier and happier uh, Like if you do this. And it's definitely going to slowly collapse in on itself like a flan if you don't. <laughs> Which, <laughs> like Ultimately, I've seen it happen to groups where they just like, people come up, go to a meeting and they're like oh an interesting thing I'm kind of interested about the environment what's going on and the meeting is so inaccessible and bizarre that they just don't come back because as someone potentially at the worst case scenario who's actively like engaging in racism or sexism or homophobia and that obviously makes you feel really uncomfortable and it's not checked by the members of the group and so obviously that person is like well this isn't a safe environment bye <laughs> so that is like a worst case scenario but even best case just that we use inaccessible quite academic language 
quite often. We don't always explain the hand signals that we use, effective as they are in communicating things. There's a very kind of exclusivist feel to environmental activism sometimes. I think we need to be breaking that down and stop a lot of the dick measuring of like, how good an environmental activist are you? Like people care and that is really enough because that really is to return to it, the basis of activism. It's enough that they care. Bring them along with you. They care. They want to give you their energy and time. Invite them in. Don't be like, how many actions have you been on though? Leave them be. <laughs> it may not be safe for them or healthy for them to do actions. And I just don't want to hear that anymore. If you are here and if you do that, we'll just, I, if you say things like, how many actions have they done though? I will appear like Bloody Mary, like just out of whatever mirror is nearest to you and just be like, fucking stop it. <laughs> Let them do a fun thing. <laughs> if they never do an action in their life, they're still an activist. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. I think that's uh, a lovely note to end on. You wouldn't be summoned. It's a horrible intersectional spec to like, do better. <laughs> well, we have the carrot and then we have the very aggressive stick. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening and keep up to date with our networks campaigns. Follow Friends of the Earth Europe on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website at www.foeeurope.org. Subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Oh my God, English. (laughs) (laughs) And follow radio stories from around the Friends of the Earth International Network at www.radiomundoreal.fm. Thanks to Pete the Temp for the music and see you next time. Bye. Bye bye. This was Friends of the Earth Europe and Rio Radio.